On today's 51%, we explore the role of community gardens in urban areas. This area is under what some people call food apartheid. And we'll meet some of the scientists who are purifying the soils the gardens grow in. The air that we breathe, the materials we surround ourselves with have a disproportionate impact on how you feel. I'm Jackie Orchard, and this is 51%. I'm Jackie Orchard, and this is 51%. Have you ever been walking around in a busy city, one maybe strewn with a few runaway pieces of garbage or with broken glass you have to yank your dog away from, to glance up and see a community garden? A secret haven of plants and vegetables with little signs that say belief in each other? Who owns it? Why did it sprout, literally, in the first place? One such place is Collard City Garden in Troy, New York. Melissa Bromley is the development director at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, a branch of which is called Collard City Growers, where community members can get their hands dirty and take home free produce. It's an educational project primarily, so we have workshops there about, you know, how to keep your own chickens or compost, or uh, we have done bioremediation in the past, like growing sunflowers to help, um, you know, pull heavy metals out of, out of the soil. And I should say it's not all food, you know, a lot of this is uh, plants to encourage pollinators and biodiversity, native plants. Some of it is herbs for medicinal use, um, indigo for artistic purposes. Uh, but yes, we have a ton of food. Right now the asparagus is popping off uh, and there is hyssop and later on the season we'll have grapes and hops and gooseberries and currants and you name it we got it kale tomatoes the whole thing and chickens and chickens <laughs> hi guys <laughs> i met the chickens but unlike the fresh asparagus i did not get to take one home can you guys give me a comment for the radio you want to talk about nature a
According to the Department of Agriculture, about 54 million people, or about 17% of the U.S. population, live in areas that are low income and more than half a mile away from the nearest grocery store, or at least 10 miles from the nearest supermarket. Food deserts. In addition, about 9% of all housing units in the United States do not have a vehicle, and 4% of all housing units are at least half a mile from a store and without a vehicle. Standing on 6th Avenue in North Troy, Bromley says if it weren't for the community garden, residents in this area might not have access to fresh produce at all. So just on the south end of the block is a boarded up storts that left this neighborhood a couple years ago. Um, and just on the top end of our block is a Whitney Health Clinic that moved up to Price Chopper Plaza north of us. Um, and in the meantime, we just keep investing here on this block right here. Bromley is referring to Whitney Young Health. Nature Lab has its own building a few houses down from the community garden, and Bromley says they're in the process of remodeling the two-story to host more programming. Right now, there is a science lab on the first floor for Nature Lab's Water Justice Fellows. Bromley says three young women from Lansingburg High School in Troy will be collaborating with a program called Riverkeeper in a three-year fellowship to test water from the Hudson River. Bromley says they plan to use the lab for community classes as well, but she felt they could do more with the upstairs. Bromley says they asked residents what new projects the building should house. One of the messages that we got from the community was that environmental justice in this neighborhood isn't environmental justice unless you're talking about trauma and physical health disparities, actual on-the-ground health disparities. And so out of that came what we now call the People's Health Sanctuary, and that is what's going to be on the second floor of this building. So this building is, is the Nature Lab building. Science lab, classroom space, like outdoor deck area. Bromley says there will be a doctor's office, too. The second floor is going to have a room for a practitioner, like, oh, wow. um, you know, depending. It's, we got this message from our community that this was the kind of programming that would be of value at the same moment where this doctor kind of started hanging around. And he and a couple of other doctors feel that there are a lot of gaps in what they can do through their job at the hospital or in a clinic and have been looking for ways to find new avenues for bringing healing and care into communities. And so the People's Health Sanctuary came on board and it's still very much in this like generative stage. Bromley says the idea of the health sanctuary predates the pandemic. She says when COVID-19 hit, everything shifted and the need for a community health care center became dire. We had programming lined up like how to take your own blood pressure that shifted to how to make your own mask and what are the mask making networks around. Um, and then over the course of the past year, it changed into even like grief programming and dealing with grief and how the grief um, layers upon grief that people in this neighborhood specifically might already have be experiencing. And so the second floor is going to have this practitioner's room, which could be for, you know, seeing a doctor one-on-one -on -one, or maybe an acupuncturist, an herbalist. And there's also going to be group meeting space, which could be for, you know, support groups coming together to talk about um, loss or 
mental health or any of these things. And of course, a kitchen. Which will definitely incorporate the food that we grow on the block. Uh, and we'll talk about, you know, the role that healthy eating plays in physical health disparities, but also emotional and uh, mental health. And the long-term plans for that. So we, we raised all the money to do the first floor, and we're in the process of raising money to do the second floor. And ultimately, the dream is to have like a wraparound porch here with an outdoor classroom that kind of leads directly in through the alley back to the gardens. Bromley says the Sanctuary for Independent Media isn't giving up on this area even though some stores seem to be. There are not um, grocery stores that are close. Uh, the Price Chopper that was closest closed last year. Um, and wonderfully, the Troy Farmers Market moved in there for the winter season when they couldn't be out outdoors. Uh, but that's still not close to here. And uh, it's true that getting access to healthy whole food is not easy here. Bromley says the garden is more than food. It's a way to bring residents together, especially when the COVID-19 pandemic has people wary of one another. But once you're outside and you got your hands in the dirt, um, it, it changes everything. And then once you are harvesting food and preparing it and cooking it together, that really has an element for deepening relationships. She says hundreds of community members are involved in the garden in some way. Some people may come back again and again, and many people do. Other people just stop by, you know, and say, what is this? Are those chickens? You know, or the chickens escape, and all of a sudden, you know, the gardens are out into the neighborhood, and we're meeting new people that way, which <laughs> does happen. Neighborhoods that need these gardens the most are often the most polluted. Studies are now indicating that the most polluted urban areas yielded higher mortality rates from COVID-19 and other health issues. So how can you grow food in soil that has been polluted for decades? Turns out, there's an architect for that. Twenty-three-year-old Mia Rogers is a graduate student at nearby Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Rogers is working on her master's in architectural science, and her thesis centers around a project to purify urban soil so that more community gardens can grow. Cleaning up essentially our, our landscapes within our urban environments. Rogers grew up on Long Island and says she sees a need for sustainability and remediation. She says urban expansion led to polluted landscapes all over the United States. So within our soil systems, there are a lot of um, heavy metals, diesel fuels, and essentially just things that are really toxic for humans to be exposed to where soil, you know, within our communities, especially in gardens, um, can be ingested through dust, through the food that we eat. Um, and essentially, I've been focusing on community gardens for low-income communities and how to clean the, the areas that they're living in due to the disproportionate, you know, exposure that most low-income communities are within their neighborhoods um, due to just very um, racially charged uh, urban planning practices over, you know, the past, past century or, or more. Roger says community gardens are more than just nice to look at. They provide a lot of people with accessible means to nutrition, which within low-income communities, it's kind of hard. So a lot of the time, um, these communities are in neighborhoods that are very um, far from like healthy and fresh produce. So essentially, community gardens are a really great form of activism in a way where um, 
you know, people can essentially be self-sufficient in that manner where they can essentially, you know, rely on their own gardening skills, especially when they're taught in these community programs to rely on, you know, their own two hands to have access to to really essential forms of nutrition, such as vegetables and and different herbs for their cooking. It it all boils down to making these environments as safe as possible for for these communities. One of the most deadly weapons against pollutants, mushrooms. So there's this um, form of soil remediation called mycoremediation, and it's a form of bioremediation, which is essentially you're able to use plant processes to uptake these chemicals embedded in the soil system. And mushrooms are able to actually naturally do this um, within, you know, forests that they essentially metabolize toxins that are threatening um, plants within the forest system. So there's recently been this technology developed over the past 40 years or so. Originally, it was developed by this mycologist named Paul Stamets, who um, he, he discovered that he was able to take these mushroom root networks, which is the mycelium, and he's able to transfer it to a site to allow for mycelium to grow into the soil. And essentially, the mycelium is able to take the toxins that are embedded in the soil, metabolize them, and essentially expunge them, returning the soil back to a healthy state. Rogers is developing a burlap mat laced with mycelium and embedded with flowers for a little extra detoxifying oomph that you just roll out onto a dirt pile. Roger says the product is still in the research phase with no firm timeline for when it might be finished, but she's working with a think tank in France called Luma to get it produced. She says the more plants grown, the more fighting power to purify the air. Two birds with one stone. Or rather, two pollutants with one mycelium mat. So how did Rogers get into the bioremediation architecture game? Meet 33-year-old Meiling Loco. Rogers is professor at RPI and director of the Building Sciences program in the School of Architecture. She has a Bachelor's of Art in Architecture, a Master's of Science, and a PhD in Architectural Sciences. She teaches environmental technology courses, including how building sciences are changing. Loco says her students partner with the Troy Community Land Bank and Habitat for Humanity to retrofit old properties. She has dedicated a whole studio to this. So these are buildings that have been foreclosed and are in, you know, sort of a state of disrepair. And that studio is very much building up um, our notions of care and repair and um, investigating what new forms of living, you know, cohabiting, um, you know, particularly in this period where we've seen a huge migration from New York City to a lot of upstate, you know, towns. Um, and, you know, students also from all around the world are around the, the university campus. What new forms of dwelling, you know, could emerge in that studio? Loco says her students were tasked with surveying some rundown buildings and coming up with a new design toward a cleaner, more sustainable community. Loco says a pair of two female students really surprised her. They were amazing in their, you know, sort of concept for what this building, this row house in, in the middle of uh, this block in north central Troy could be. They sort of proposed a 
clothes upcycling um, commercial um, program on the ground floor. And it kind of stretched to the back of the building, which engaged the alley that we have in, you know, many of these um, blocks here in Troy. And I thought it was such a great proposal because um, it dealt with, you know, the domestic, you know, you there's sort of a rethinking of rituals on the community scale. How do you dispose of things you don't want anymore? And how can a larger home-based enterprise emerge from that? Um, and how can the building support that? You know, the, the face of the building was now in the alley. It was activating the alley. There was sort of a safe haven for a lot of activities and um, not just for the actual commercial business, but a social life to emerge at the back. Loco says spending the past year plus learning remotely has changed how architecture students see the spaces they're designing. They've started to engage more intimately with these issues in, in surprising ways. I mean, how do you begin to socialize after you know we come out of this period? Um, how might we, we treat air in our buildings differently? How can you have privacy but also feel contact with your neighbor? How do you build a sense of community? Um, you know, in, in places like North Central Troy or just around the RPI campus. So there are a lot of social issues um, with this and technological as well. So for sure, I think that, um, you know, air security, you know, community building, um, health and well-being is going to be forefront. Loco's father is from Ghana, and her mother is from the Philippines. She lived in both countries growing up. She has a startup company in Ghana called Willow, which takes waste from agriculture and develops new applications for it. Some building materials, some is water treatment uh, um, technologies. And it kind of tries to look at any output from the building or from agriculture as a resource for another, you know, um, life cycle. I'm primarily inspired by the ways in which sort of vernacular or indigenous cultures have used chemicals or materials in the past and figuring out ways to basically capture and transform the way we can use it today. Loco says one of the most common industries in Ghana is textiles. She says she's been working on a project for eight years to help a fair trade company called Global Mamas find a use for its toxic textile wastewater. And in order to treat it, my company was hired to look at other forms of affordable and non-toxic you know, treatment technologies. And so I'd been looking at Moringa, which is sort of a, a plant native to a lot of tropical areas. It's typically used for tea and oil. Loco's doctorate centered on using agricultural waste to develop building materials. She recalls her dad telling her that he would wash his hands in Moringa-soaked water. The waste product of that is sort of like this flour substance, which is very good at basically making all the bad stuff in the textile wastewater clump together and sink, cleaning it in, in the process, at least below EPA-level requirements. And that waste coming out of agriculture is used to treat their wastewater and then the sludge from that we're investigating for other applications. So, you know, it might be a building block, it might be a fertilizer, um, we're still developing that, but there's sort of a, a couple of layers of, you know, outputs becoming resources or another commercial pipeline. I myself have lived in Ghana. 
I taught English in rural villages and helped build houses. I also taught choir and music. I tell Loco I remember the women carrying water from rivers, stomping mud, and cooking alongside me, with newborn babies slung on their backs. Loco says this is common in Ghana, and part of why she's working to make the textile industry safer. Like the women are literally on their backs when they're, when they're sitting on a, a low stool and dying. And um, cooking happens the same way. I think, you know, the, the project where we were developing that wastewater chemical sort of expanded actually to look at how the women were working and how to improve the ergonomic and the health of not just a mother but her child because you can imagine fumes coming off of dyes or you know particulate matter from cooking that's being inhaled right over a mother's shoulder and so the project kind of expanded to redesign the entire batik station layout um, for that very consideration to reduce stress in the woman's body. Loco says the role of the architect is expanding. I think there's a broader picture here where there is everything from how our land, whatever is grown from the land gets transformed into building materials. You know, whatever comes out of the house in terms of waste, in terms of energy, all of that stuff. And so I think I'm more interested in how an architect might be able to navigate a larger value chain as, to, as opposed to just staying in that one where you're sort of providing sort of services to a client. There are other non-clients, whether that's the environment or other stakeholders um, in you know, the urban or rural environment that, that you can work with. So there's an activism which I feel has become quite loud during this COVID period. Um, it's caused us to reflect on what our discipline means and what its impact is on the world. Loco says part of climate justice is looking at the materials we use to build our living spaces and how they got there. For example, where I'm from in Ghana, um, there's the predominance of concrete and glass. And you think about glass as being a material that conducts heat really, really well into the interior and concrete is super good at like absorbing that heat and then at night radiating that heat into the interior. So you've got a period at night when temperatures drop, humidity is high, but your materials are the sources of heat, just making the inside incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and I think the reason why people build with it is because it's so attached to this idea of being modern of being progressive. It also has to do with class. Um, and so there's this huge socialization of, that of those materials that is hard to overcome. And it also ties back to how comfort has been defined for us. Like you put on your air conditioner, you're gonna get cold, dry air very predictably in a short period of time. And when you think of alternative materials like you know, breathable, 
fibrous materials that we've used and shading devices, that's relatively slow, you know. Your body has to adapt and adjust and there are all these spaces like verandas that help you move into the interior. So I think it's complex <laughs> and I think that, um, yeah, we're, we're dealing with social and cultural issues even though the technologies are there to, to mitigate our climatic loads, what we choose ends up being influenced very much by you know, social class, cultural values. Um, so that's another territory of building sciences, the behavioral, <laughs> understanding what people um, attach, values people attach to the material systems and how they operate in their buildings. So that's a whole nother territory. And I think that that's exciting to see the building scientists begin to expand to, you know, beyond physics, looking at chemistry, indoor chemistry. We spend most of our time indoors these days. So that is a huge impact on our health and well-being, behavioral sciences, obviously. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a huge territory, but I think that um, built environment professionals can't ignore it anymore, you know, especially now. I think, what are we, close to 100% of time indoors? <laughs> Um, and the, airs that, the air that we breathe, the materials we surround ourselves with have a disproportionate impact on how you feel, your health, um, and how you socialize. Roger says architects get a bad rap. She says people assume architects are unfurling gaudy blueprints of 30-floor casinos every day, making millions. But she says there are so many other fields. I found a real passion towards just being able to focus upon the communities that we're designing for. And I think that's, but I mean, it's definitely not something ignored within the field of architecture, but I, I think it's something that we definitely need to, you know, focus more on uh, moving towards the future, just more social and both socially sustainable and ecologically sustainable um, architecture because, you know, moving towards climate change and along with, you know, so many of the social change changes kind of occurring right now in in our society I think it's important to kind of hop on that and be able to as a designer use this skill to be a form of activism and a, a form of community advocacy for people who are have been oftentimes you know ignored by society as a whole. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, air quality improves as areas become less urban, and rural counties experience fewer unhealthy air quality days than large central metropolitan counties, likely because of fewer air pollution sources. The CDC says these findings suggest a continued need to develop more geographically targeted, evidence-based interventions to prevent morbidity and mortality associated with poor air and water quality. Local governments are turning their attention toward building more affordable housing in less polluted areas, especially after witnessing the health disparities of the pandemic. But for those who can't move or don't want to uproot their homes, these women in biodiversity and architecture will be working to clean up the ones they already have. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. Thanks for joining us for this week's 51%. Thanks to our story editor, Ian Pickus. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Lolita by Albany-based artist Girl Blue.
51% is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this episode again or share it with your friends, sign up for our podcast or visit wamc.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 51% Radio. Join us next week as we talk about feminism in Hollywood with film archivist Audrey Kupferberg. We'll also sit down with a local film commissioner to talk about what it's like to convince production companies to shoot in your city. I've spoken to a couple of women and even seen it myself that are, you know, a producer or a director with a project, but they, they share with me when they go on set, a lot of times people think they're the PAs or the people that are there to get coffee. I'm your host, Jackie Orchard. Until next week, remember, the future is fearless.